Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast. This is episode 285. We're going to talk about 401k options that plan sponsors should pass on. Of course, first things first, as we usually do, go to that 401ksite.com for further information on all, all our events. May the 3rd, Arlington, Texas. Uh, special guest, Dave Valley, who uh, I did not know but played for the Rangers. I know him more for the Mariners. He's also uh, a broadcaster for the uh, Rangers. So that should be a lot of fun. Um, you know, people want to reach out to me if there, you know, there may be tickets available for the second, which is an afternoon game. Uh, then we got June the 7th, Yankee Stadium. That's a Friday night. Uh, we'll figure out what we're going to do with tickets. Probably ask people to, you know, hit, uh, kick in something if they want to go to the game. Tickets are probably expensive. And I know a lot of people don't want to have an event in the Bronx and stay in the Bronx for another four or five hours. Uh, even though it's a lot nicer than it was about 40 years ago. Um, but um, we don't have a guest yet. We should have one soon. Uh, Larry's working on it. And, of course, go to that 4 ksitecom uh, 100 bucks gets you in. i got to say that the Yankee Stadium event is probably the most um, heavily anticipated by our plan provider sponsors. The sponsorship has been excellent. I wish we had that for all our events. But, uh, you know, obviously New York... Uh, playing to a hometown crowd, Yankee Stadium is Yankee Stadium, uh, much like we got a good response for Wrigley and Dodger Stadium, but uh, Yankee Stadium is quite um, quite the opposite. I think the interest here is bigger than the first event, which was at City Field. So let's go to the task at hand. Um, I haven't bought a car in, you know, almost 12 years. And I had to buy two cars in 2012 because there was this thing called Hurricane Sandy and just destroyed uh, my 2010 Prius and my 2000 and uh, 2004 Mazda 6. Uh, the Mazda 6, uh, even though it gave me 19 miles to a gallon, I, I still miss that car. It had, was a six-cylinder as opposed to the, its replacements, which is the Mazda Three, which is a four-cylinder, and the Prius V, which is also a four-cylinder. I used to be the guy who would buy a car every three years, and you know I always followed the uh, J. Paul Getty's uh, mantra: you know, buy what appreciates, lease what depreciates. And a car de depreciates, so I thought I was, you know, doing a good thing by leasing a car, getting a new one every three years. And my wife, who uh, whose family did buy things on credit and did uh, lease cars, thought buying made more sense. And I think that, you know, I'm a, I'm a creature of the 70s and 80s and, you know, three, four years back when I was a kid, that's when the car started to have trouble. And now, you know, the Prius V is almost 12 years old. Uh, I had to replace the suspension at one point, replace the battery. But outside of that, everything is, is a-okay. Um, no big issues on the car. And we'll ride that car until, you know, until the ground. Uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of silly uh, buying cars. I, I, you know, I don't miss that experience. Uh, you got some dealerships that are less trusty, trustworthy than others. Uh, I remember when we were looking at the Mazda 6 and Costco uh, was offering, you know, a special program, which I think they still have to buy a car and I went to this Mazda dealership in Garden City, which is actually really, it was actually in Hempstead. Uh, and I, 
I don't know, the auto dealers in Hempstead, they are all on Franklin Avenue, and they're all just, you know, over-experienced. I, I just find them to be thieves. So I was going to lease the Mazda 6. Um, I had Nissan Maxima, and I think my Nissan Maxima was like 300 or 290 something a month for the lease, and we thought the Mazda 6 is worth less than the... Um, then the Maxmon, these people in um, Hempstead wanted to charge me more than I was paying for my Maxima. Then we go to another Mazda dealership, and it was $50 less a month. Um, but one of the things, other things that I miss about cars is, you know, trying to try and get these different packages. Uh, you know, there's certain options and trims and this, this, and that. But there were certain options I remember as a kid that were just, I think, kind of silly. Um, one I think was the, uh, etch glass. Uh, you pay somebody, you pay them to etch the VIN, the VIN number into the glass of the car. And if you could only identify the car through the etched glass, um, then I don't want the car back. Uh, I just thought it was kind of silly. But the same thing is for 401k plans. There are a lot of options out there that I don't think plan sponsors really should, um, you know, go out there and, 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 and proceed. And I think this episode's going to be a little bit controversial because I'm going to say flat out, there's a lot of Secure 2.0 stuff I don't like. Uh, that if I was, you know, again, uh, and, and I do represent small to medium-sized plans, I don't like um, I don't like some of these provisions that are optional. So uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, be the Larry David that I am and just explain why I just think these are really bad ideas. Right off the bat, the after-tax employer Roth contributions, one of the features of Secure 2.0, um, it's an optional provision. Um, you know, unlike the mandatory Roth after ta uh, the Roth catch-up, which I think will be in 2025, they were supposed to be in 2024, um, which requires all HCs to defer uh, their... Roth, I mean, their catch-up on a after-tax Roth basis, there's an optional provision for plan sponsors to add the option of plan participants electing to receive their employer contributions on a Roth basis. I don't recommend it. I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a lot of work for very few people who are going to want to do it. Uh, it's going to be one or two employees that can afford it and want to do it. The biggest problem to me is that... Uh, Obviously, any employer contribution that is Roth has to be fully vested. So you're asking an employer to say, hey, forget about like six-year graded schedule. We're going to give a match to some fellow or lady who um, wants to do it on an after-tax basis. Uh, we want to treat them special. I don't think that plan sponsors want to do that. I think that plan sponsors have a vesting schedule. They want to maintain it for all their employees, not for the kind of rich cats who can afford the Roth feature or even the not-so-rich cats who can afford to uh, do that. Um, you know, the whole idea behind the vesting schedule is to get people to stay and offering it up front, 100% vested to those who could put it away on a tax, you know, after-tax basis doesn't seem kind of something that a plan sponsor would go, uh, you know, behind. Uh, then the, there's the issue of record keeping, which I think is a giant headache. Um, it's an employer contribution. Plan participant is going to have to pay tax on it up front. 
So I thought, you know, when they originally had the idea, I'm like, how are we going to do that? You know, people get paychecks. How are we going to do this tax recording thing? So the IRS came out with some guidance and said that uh, if they receive matching or non-elective profit sharing contribution on a Roth basis, it's got to be reported on Form 1099-R, not a W-2. So that means they are not withholding any taxes. Well, they could, I guess they could, uh, if the TPA allows it. But uh, Roth contributions won't be subject to FICA. Uh, but, you know, and, you know, the income, t the mandatory withholding, uh, you know, doesn't apply. There won't be actually, you know, mandatory withholding. Uh, plan participant then would take that 1099-R and pay taxes on it, you know, put it all together with their 1040 and see where they're going. One would assume the TPA is going to issue the 1099-R, but obviously they're going to want to be paid for that kind of work. I don't like volunteering people to do extra work and not get paid for it. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of IRAs, the Roth IRA and, you know, the Roth deferrals. I think it's Roth employer contributions that are too much work uh, for a plan sponsor to implement because I don't think it's going to be very, very popular. And it's just, again, a lot of work for a lot of nothing. Speaking about a lot of work for a lot of nothing, uh, my opinion is the emergency savings accounts that are offered as an option as part of Secure 2.0, uh, I don't like them either. They're called PLACA, which is a pension-linked emergency savings account. We know that because the DOL issued some guidance. A PLESA is capped at $2,500. Um, so a plant's participant could put away after-tax money, um, $2,500. It could grow beyond the $2,500, and they would be able to withdraw from the account at their discretion without paying a 10% early withdrawal fee. Uh, they won't be required to prove a hardship, unlike hardship distributions. Uh, they can take money at any time at the discretion. Um, you know, it's separate and apart uh, from Section 115 of Secure 2.0, which allowed people to withdraw a penalty free of a thousand bucks for emergencies. So I don't recommend it. I think it's a lot of nonsense and a lot of work for not a lot of money. This $2,500 place is no different than the old after-tax thrift voluntary contributions. Uh, you know, there need to be separate record-keeping uh, contributions, again, capped at $2,500. Uh, you know, I don't think that's a lot of money for, for emergencies. Uh, needless to say, I'm sitting where Hurricane Sandy had five feet of water. Uh, my emergency was... 30 to 40 times that $2,500 amount. I understand the tax-free nature of the money in the place, but they should be, you know, since it's after-tax money, you know, I, I just I just don't think that it's really necessary because you do have loans, you do have hardship distributions. It's, to me, not a lot of money and a whole lot more work for something that I don't think that most plan participants could put away and deal with. And it's just, to me, I, I know that a lot of large employers will offer it because they like to offer, offer offer things. I just don't think it's worth the time and effort for most small and medium-sized plans. Uh, speaking of something that is controversial, I will reiterate my opposition to self-directed brokerage accounts. I will, uh, I'm not going to be the Don Quixote and, and, you know, 
fight against participant-directed 401k plans, you know, um, even though I think that trustee-directed plans are still the better option, because I believe that uh, educated financial professionals are better at uh, providing um, investment uh, decisions and uh, getting gains from those decisions than a, a participant. But, you know, that, that, that fight set sail 25 years ago. Uh, you know, to me, that's, you know, arguing the A-track is better than the LP. Um, even though I don't understand why people like LPs, because the CD just doesn't scratch. But apparently, LPs sell more than CDs in the United States as of, I think, last year. But uh, I do think that, um, you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, Participant-directed plans are going to go bye-bye. I mean, that that's ridiculous. I mean, that's that, that that's what it is. It is what it is, even though I think trustee-directed plans work better. That being said, I will renew my opposition to self-directed brokerage accounts. Um, to me, it brings a whole host of issues and questions and problems. And, you know, I used to joke that self-directed brokerage accounts were just, you know, for accounting firms, law, law firms, and, and, and medical practices. And, you know, are the key companies that do offer it, but primarily it's professional organizations, professional accounting and legal and and medical that offer it. I think the problem with self-directed brokerage accounts, for, you know, a lot of reasons. Number one, benefits, rights, and features. Um, you know, I worked at that Fakakta law firm and, you know, it was until I think I was leaving that practice that I realized that there were self-directed brokerage accounts offered to um, partners only. I don't know if it was all partners or it was only the partners with voting rights. I mean, they, they, it was kind of ridiculous over there. They had different partnership levels. One was like a one, the top level, which means they could vote in, in meetings as opposed to lower uh, partners who could only vote in departmental meetings, which I, I thought was kind of ridiculous. And there was one low-level partner who swore that I made more than he did as a associate. But, uh, you know, we can't have benefits, rights, and features that discriminate in favor of highly compensated employees. Uh, I was a highly compensated employee at that law firm, but, you know, I'm sure the staff wasn't offered, uh, you know, anything to do with that. So that's a big um, compliance issue. Um, another issue is when somebody has a self-directed brokerage account and they want to use their broker or their advisor. So we had uh, this guy who worked in the tax cert department, and I just saw him this week. He lives in my village. Um, he was like the premier network networking guy in the law firm, and I mean, I'll say this, he was just not a nice guy deep down. He presented himself as this nice guy, and, and he wasn't. Uh, but anyway, he wanted to work with his broker, and since he was the big money maker in the law firm, nobody could say no. Um, you want to employ your financial advisor on your self-directed brokerage account. I understand that. But the problem is, does the plan sponsor every ever vet the advisor uh, that the partner picks? And I'm sure the answer is no. In addition, it costs a whole host of problems when you have an advisor on the plan and you bring in another advisor to manage that money so the advisor on the plan can't make money on that. And so therefore, I would assume other plan participants would pay more because there will be less assets under the 401k advisor's uh, management. Uh, 
Um, of course, um, another issue is monitoring. I don't, you know, plan sponsors are fiduciaries for all of the retirement plan, including what's in the self-directed brokerage accounts. So I think there's a duty to monitor. Uh, what happens when a participant um, makes crazy bets? They put in all their money in um, JetBlue or Spirit Air or some crazy ETF. Uh, are they going to discuss it with plan participants? Probably not, especially if the crazy bets are made by one of the owners of the company. That's not going to happen. That discussion is not going to happen. But there is a duty to monitor and duty to see what's going on. Um, you know, the Department of Labor is really not uh, given guidance as to the plan sponsor's liability and self-directed brokerage accounts. And, you know, my concern is one day an aggrieved partner at the law firm leaves and uh, they cause trouble and they want to sue that law firm for losses sustained in the self-directed brokerage account. People say, oh, that's never going to happen. My wife works at a firm recently. Um, one of the associates left, and uh, apparently he didn't want to pay into the f fantasy football pool that he was a part of, the fantasy football league, I'm sorry. And his uh, argument was he, he didn't want to have anything to do with that law firm, and he was obviously going to take it out on the people who still work there. And so he welched on what he owed which to me doesn't make any sense. You leave a job, still friendly, you know, still friendly with some of the people there. It's, it's you know, whatever happens, it's not personal with the fellow employees, in my opinion, except if you you know, do work with one or two morons, which, uh, you know, I did. So I'd hold against the one or two morons that I work with. So that could be a liability issue. Um, and then, of course, the issue now is with Bitcoin. Uh, Department of Labor says, listen, we don't, we don't think this is a great investment, but now we have Bitcoin ETFs, we have Ethereum ETFs. What's going to stop a plant participant from investing in it? I'm sure nobody has put any stops in place. Um, you know, I'm again, I'm waiting for that one day when a participant is going to sue a, a plan for offering self-directed brokerage accounts and for them losing their money. <coughs> to me, people want to gamble. That's fine. I don't gamble. I think that plan participants are better off with what's on the core investment lineup. I just think that it's just too much nonsense. Uh, and I think that plan participants with that core lineup do better than anybody in a self-directed broker account. That's my, my two cents. I know people disagree with me. And I do have plan sponsors that do offer the self-directed broker account, even though I say, you know, I don't think it's a great idea. Um uh, I'm going to be that stick in the mud and just going to tell plant sponsors that this is an option that they really should punt on. Last but not least, uh, that's a rough with a few fe feathers, but I'm against the annuity payment option. I know the Department of Labor, the IRS, and Congress wants plant participants to have more annuity options, lifetime income, and all that kind of crap. Uh, I don't like it. I don't like it because my job is to protect the plan sponsor. I don't, you know, it's protect the plan sponsor. Plan sponsor is my client. The plan participant is not my client. Uh, if, in my opinion, a plan, yeah, plan participant terminates, my best thing for them is goodbye and take your money. And take it in a lump sum. I don't want the plan sponsor to ever think about you ever again. Uh, it's not personal. I just, 
It's all about liability. And uh, I just hate the idea that a planned sponsor has got to go through the whole trouble of seeking out annuity providers, seeking out annuity options, and then going through the whole process of you know, helping this participant get an annuity policy and paying the plan out. Uh, if they want an annuity, go buy one at the bank, if they still do that. I remember my grandmother, my sure rest in peace, she'd buy an annuity from the bank, paying 7 8% back in the day. Want an annuity? Good luck to you. Do it yourself. Uh, leave me out of it. Uh, I like lump sum payment in cash. Goodbye. Farewell. Avita Zane, goodbye. Um, and that's it. I mean, I don't like to volunteer the plan sponsor to do extra work. And annuity payment option is just extra work and extra potential liability. And I know there are people out there who are really pushing that annuity and push it for larger plans that have the resources to go through the process and full-time HR that can you know, help the participants select the annuity and all that kind of jazz or work with the TPA because, you know, I'm sure a lot of these TPAs have relationships and all that stuff. But that's it. I don't need I don't need this stuff. So that's my two cents. I hope you enjoyed this episode of That 4K Podcast. Go to that4ksite.com for further information on all our live events. Arlington, Yankee Stadium. That's probably it for this year. I, I think I'm going to do two events a year. I think next year I want to do Anaheim and Washington, D.C. We'll see what happens. Everything's in flux. Um, you know, we got already, or, you know, more than two months away from Texas. We got, you know, about 10 people signed up, which is really, really promising uh, compared to what we were doing in, you know, 2022. Um, so uh, go to that 4 sign up, all that kind of stuff. We'll let you know about other guests for Yankee Stadium. We got Dave Valley for Arlington. So, uh, again, tune in for another fun-filled episode of that 4K podcast. Thanks. Bye.